Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Genesis 49, and we have two more chapters left, which I think we'll get to tonight. Verse 1, Jake called his sons, called his sons and said, Gather together that I might tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to your fa- Israel your father. Um, so the last chapter, or this last piece, Jacob's announced that he's about to die many times. This time he's actually, this is going to be his last little uh, snippet in the, in the book. And we're going to see that we get a look at the founding fathers of Israel um, and how this nation is put together and how it's built. Um, and we're going to shift from the three patriarchs, which have highlighted the book of Genesis has been Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're going to shift from that to nationhood. So the last two chapters really focus on Israel as a nation and what's going to happen. And the redemptive plan of God is going to move from a patriarchal system to the nation of Israel being the carriers of this promise, not just a single person, but a group of people. Um, So that's going to be the shift in what we're going to look at. If you zip way down to verse 28, you can see that these are all going to be blessings that these are the, he's going to go through each of his sons and bless them. Um, and they're all blessings, even though some of them don't sound like blessings. Some of them are going to be pitfalls that they need to know about or they're going to fall into it. And some of the sons do fall into these pitfalls later on, and some of them don't. And I'm going to do some for looking forward on that, but I'm also going to kind of try to move through these fairly quick. Also pick up on the phrase, befall you in the last days. In the Hebrew, that means the distant future or the latter day, which is where we get the Mormon's Church of Latter-day Saints. Um, is that they believe that they are we are in the last days, and they're using this phrase from uh, from 49 verse 1. So the other piece for us is that some of these are going to be things that happen immediately to these sons and their families, but some of them are clearly end times predictions because they haven't happened yet, and I'll point out which ones are which on that. Verse 2 starts a poetic form. So we're ending the book with a large poem, and poems are meant to be memorized through the kinds of things that little Jewish youngsters would be memorizing before they had their little Jewish coming-of-age parties, and they still do. So these poems are meant to be there. Um, and I like the gather and listen because it reminds me of like a old storyteller in a smoky tavern and that sort of thing. Come, listen to my stories. Anyways, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency and dignity and the excellency of power unstable as water you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it and he went up to my couch (laughs) so Jacob as we know from his personality is not worried about other people's feelings Um, he does not go out of his way to couch this and make it gentle or to speak truth in love he's just speaking truth 
um, and he's going to do that. Genesis, he's referring to Genesis 35:22, which we've already covered, where Reuben has immoral sex with Bilhah, his mother-in-law. Um, this is the potential of Reuben is that he is the beginning of strength. He's supposed to represent the family. He's supposed to, you know, he's the oldest son. He's the biggest, the strongest. He's supposed to represent that. Um, he could have been better in both of these things in dignity and power, but in verse four, he's unstable. He's not reliable. We've seen that. The went up phrase is Allah or to rise up or to extend to. And Jacob's saying you only really came up to a certain level. You should have come up a lot further, but you didn't. You only came up to my bed height. You only came up to my couch or my lap. So you should, it's like Reuben never really grew up. He stayed a little boy for far too long in life, which is still a danger today for young men. It's that they don't grow up into to men that take on responsibility. And to, to take that on is something that Reuben had to do. His father couldn't do it for him. So he really only came up to his lap or his couch. Also, God doesn't give the birthright automatically to the eldest. He might be first born, but he doesn't necessarily have the birthright. Um, as we saw before, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh took the place of Reuben and Simeon as first and second born when it comes to birthright in the last chapter. So there's a consistent theme here throughout that God is not like the world. He looks at the heart of sons, not at the birth order of them. So Reuben as a tribe is going to go on to play a remarkably minor role in Israel's history. One of our friends, Trevor Rubenstein, is of the tribe of Reuben. And he's still doing great work. So there's even some people in the tribe of Reuben that I think are blessed by God. Um, but they will play next to no role throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, this prophecy is there. Uh, they won't have any prophets come out of the tribe of Reuben. There will be no judges that come out of the tribe of Reuben. And of course, there will be no kings because they all come out of a different tribe. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, second and third. Um, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling places. So they harbor or keep things to be cruel to people. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For their, in their anger, they slew a man. The word man there is actually a singular plural. He's talking about the whole city that they slew or destroyed back in Genesis 34. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger for its fierce and their wrath for its cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So this is the prophecy or prediction for them. Um, the idea is that the when you keep things in your dwelling place, I think that's an image for when you're thinking about things. So Simeon and Levi just think cruel thoughts. And they they did that. When the, the word man and oxen, of course, are both in the plural, um, their true sins are name, named here. It wasn't murder that's named. Notice that what's named as the sin is anger. It's the anger that they slew a man and in their self-will that excludes them from the blessings of this family. There's godly anger. We see Jesus gets angry sometimes, but there's not really, un, there's not really a, um, when you put self-will with it, it's never godly. So an anger that's driven by self or to get something you want for yourself isn't the kind of anger we see demonstrated by Jesus at all. It's separated in that sense. So as a family, these two are not to be listened to. Don't don't uh, unite in their assembly. Uh, don't enter their council. That means you shouldn't listen to these two. <laughs> They're driven by themselves. Uh, keep a separate council. Don't let them to be part of it. Um, 
And again, this isn't necessarily a cursing. Consider this a warning because these are all called blessings in the end. Here's the warning is that as two young men, Simeon and Levi are old men, they actually have families. Um, their anger and their self-will are going to send them off course or they're going to send them to be helpful to the tribe. So their counsel won't be good. They're not wise people and neither will their families be in that sense. He will divide them and he does divide them. Neither one of them gets a land inheritance. In Joshua 19, Simeon's territory is actually inside the territory of Judah. He gets a couple cities in there, so he doesn't really get his own territory. And then uh, the weakest tribe will be Simeon's. Um, in Numbers 1.23, Simeon's tribe is the third largest of the tribes, but by Numbers 26.14, it's, it's dead last. So they don't prosper, they don't grow. It doesn't go well for the tribe of Simeon. This holds true. The Levitical Levites, it's a little bit different story. So this is where it can be a blessing too. They get separated, but they get separated to serve the people of Israel. So the Levi's tribe, of course, becomes the Levites, which are the priests of the nation. So they don't get a land inheritance. That's true. They get scattered all throughout Israel, which is true because every town got its own Levite. And the Levites uh, become that blessing um, and God becomes their inheritance in Joshua 13. Uh, in Joshua 33, too. So during the rebellion against Moses in Exodus 32, the Levites side with Moses. So they're one of the tribes that don't, and it's why they get blessed as priests. So their unwillingness to go in with the crowd is actually what makes them holy. For the Simeonites, it's the exact opposite. It's their self-will that makes them so that God doesn't bless them as a tribe. But for both of them, the prophecy comes true. They're both scattered. Neither one of them gets a land inheritance. They do get divided. Um, one withers, the other blesses. Joshua or Judah in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise, which is a play on words because Judah means praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. A number of the sons will get compared with an animal. Um, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him he shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Judah and Joseph are going to get the most extensive blessings. You notice this is a number of verses. Judah's going to be preeminent. That's the first part. Um, Judah will lead the other tribes. This becomes true in 1 Chronicles 5.2. Whenever the tribe moves, the tribe of Judah's out in front and leads the way. Just like Jacob had Judah lead the way down to Egypt. So that tradition continues to hold. Joseph gets the firstborn status, but Judah becomes the ruling tribe and leads the Israel in travel. This is key because for the first time really in the history of the world, the leader of the country is not the same person as the religious leader. And that ha in almost every other world that's true. And even in the Middle Ages when the church starts to corrupt, a lot of what happened in Europe is the king started to own religious leader and political leader like uh, Henry VIII did that and um, Louis in France and they started to say we're going to control our own churches and we're not going to listen to the Catholic Church. 
Um, so that continues to happen throughout history. But with Jewish tradition, that's not necessarily the same. They come from different groups and different tribes. Judah will get the largest land allotment, which is implied here, but that's actually what happens in Joshua 15. If you want to, again, I'm just giving these references, but I'm not reading them all because it's a cool Bible study. You'll see nice connections there, and we'll get there when we get to Joshua. Uh, the name of the land, Judah, will actually take the name of Judah's tribe, and it's actually called Judea all the way until after Jesus in AD 135. Um, so the actual uh, idea that Judah becomes kind of known is, is well-established. Uh, Judea loses the name Judea when the Hadrian uh, Romans squished the Bar Kova revolt. So after Jesus has um, been resurrected and the Christian church starts spreading all over the place, about a hundred years later, the Jewish people actually make the revolt that they thought Jesus was going to lead. And Barkova is called the Messiah by the people of the Jewish people. Um, only Hadrian squishes him and kills him and he remains dead. So the whole idea of a resurrected Messiah, it doesn't really fit with him. Um, and that's there. So uh, Judah is compared to the lion. Again, there's a lot more of these to come. And then that image plays through. A lion lays without fear. So when you think of how a lion lays in the wilderness, if you look it up, they kind of sprawl out like it's their territory because lions are at the top of the food chain. They don't really worry about who's going to attack them or who's going to beat them up. And that's the phrase, who shall rouse him? Like nobody, nobody rouses a lion. That's a bad idea. Um, the scepter is a symbol of royal power. A scepter is what a sovereign king would have or a right to rule. So Judah gets the right to rule. Um, and that shall not depart from Judah, which only comes true. And it says when Shiloh comes, Shiloh means tranquility or a deserved tranquility. So most people, even Jewish people, believe this is a messianic prophecy um, that from the tribe of Judah should come a lawgiver that never ends. And that is hard to do because Judah dies, Judah's son dies, in fact, the entire line of kings, every single one of them dies up until Jesus Christ, which doesn't die, um, which is why so many Jews became uh, messianic Jews or Christians um, right off the bat is here's somebody who didn't die that was in the line of the kings. I've even heard stories of people that read Luke 3, Jewish people, and that's what they need to convert to Christianity is the little genealogy in Luke 3 because they're like, wow. Yeah, he rose from the dead, and that's what was promised, and in the line of kings, in the tribe of Judah. Um, after Jesus, this right to rule is actually taken away from the Jewish people. Um, so Rome actually has the right to execute justice. And so the right to rule or the right to execute justice, to persecute people. Remember when Jesus was sent to the cross, it was the Romans that sent him there. But the Jewish people, the, the Sanhedrin, actually had the right to do that up until Jesus was like in his teen years. So the right to rule was taken away after Jesus was born, um, and which is kind of an interesting timing. So if the scepter never departs from Judah, that would have had to have happened during Jesus' generation because Rome takes that right away for the first time. Um, verse 11 talks about bounty in the land. Judah's going to be a bountiful land. Uh, and the images there make sense if you are a vin viner. If you do grapevines, you realize you don't tie donkeys to grapevines. 
grapevines are more valuable than the donkey is. So when a donkey starts to try to run away or pull on it, they wreck the grapevine. So in a land where you're tying donkeys off on grapevines is a land where you have so much abundance that the grapevine's value isn't as high. Same thing when you wash your garments in wine. I don't know why you would do that, but if you were going to do that, you'd have so much wine around that you would just wash your clothes in it. It's like the streets made of gold kind of image. Um, so uh, other people interpret that as when you wash your garments in wine, that that's a sign of warfare and conflict. I think that's a tough one because other tribes do most of the warfare and conflict throughout Israel's history. Um, I think it's this image that goes with the donkey one, which is you're so wealthy, you can use those high buck luxury items to take care of base level things. Um, eyes darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk. When you get old, your eyes lighten or whiten. And when you go blind, they whiten completely. So dark eyes was seen by the Jewish people is a healthy, you have healthy, clear eyes. So, um, and the same thing with white teeth. The older you get, the more yellow your teeth get. So nice white teeth and dark eyes mean health and vibrancy and Judah will have those things too. So particularly lots of abundance for Judah is on the way, complete wealth, prosperity, and a youthful kind of health that goes through there. Um, verse 13, Zebulun. Not much to say for Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea and he shall become a haven for ships. And his border shall adjoin Sidon. You'd think this means that Zebulun would get land by the sea, but they don't. So in Ezekiel 48, there's a prophecy of the millennial kingdom where Zebulun will get land by the sea upon the return of the Messiah. That prophecy hasn't been met yet. So the idea of Zebulun being by the sea doesn't happen in Joshua. They don't get land by the sea. And you'd think if they were trying to make all these prophecies come true that they would just do it because Jacob said so. But they don't, which for me is one of those kind of things where either this is a prophecy that didn't come true when it should have or it just hasn't come true yet. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey. I would rather be the lion, but Issachar is going to be a donkey, a strong one, uh, lying down between two burdens. He saw that the rest was good and the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. So, so a strong physical tribe, but fairly lazy. And that's the pitfall they can fall into. And if they fall into it, they're going to become slaves. Uh, they get a good allotment of land in Joshua, um, but they're not very ambitious. And they end up actually being servants and selling themselves to the Canaanites. So that's the end of, of Issachar and that tribe. You don't have a lot of Issachar steins around today. The tribe kind of withers and goes away. Tribe of Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so its rider shall fall backwards. Sounds like not such a great prophecy for Dan. Um, Dan's name means judge. So again, we have another play on words here. Uh, Dan, the judge shall judge his people. Um, Samson uh, is a Danite, so we do have a judge coming out of the tribe of Dan. Um, the Danites will fall back to idolatry and they'll never really return from it. So they do with idol worship. They bring idol worship to the other tribes and they become a viper by the path that trips up the other tribes and causes them to stumble. Judges 18 Dan moves from their allotment to another town called Laish, and they rename that town Dan. 
1966, until now, they're still digging up the city of the Danites. Um, so they're finding lots of those pieces there. Um, they also, uh, they found in that excavation, the Zolos vows, which is a Greek and aromatic double translation saying the exact same thing. And they both say that they, uh, to the God who is in Dan, Zolos vows. So it's a contract between another tribe and the Danites. Um, this is also a site that's going to be set up by Jeroboam. He sets up a pagan worship site in this uh, Laish or Dan. Um, and there have been multiple excavations there that show pagan worship. 1976, 1977, 1981, all digging up pagan worship trines. So it wasn't just one god that the Danites were following. They're bringing in the whole pantheon. Um, the name of Dan is then found repeatedly all over in these sites. In Jeremiah 8, Dan is not listed among the 144,000 in the end of days. They will not return to the following of, of Jehovah or God, um, and they will essentially be, go the way of the world. They will end, end being a part of it. So they're not in the end times. Um, in fact, what Jeremiah does say is that this, the Danites will actually attack the other Jews. So they'll become an enemy of the Jewish people and they'll go off after those folks. And the 144,000 are largely Messianic Jews and the Danites will go after them. Verse 18, we have a pause. Uh, verse 18 kind of stands by itself. I've awaited your salvation, O Lord. It's like a chorus in the middle of the poem. It breaks the poetic flow. Um, it is, interestingly, the first use of the word salvation in the Bible. And uh, if you translate it, it is Yeshua or the word Jesus. So it's the first time we see that word or name anywhere in the Bible. Um, and it's right in the middle of these promises between the tribes. Make of that what you will, but it's kind of, I always want to point out the first uses. Um, many people believe that, um, and this is Christian traditions, not Jewish, that the fact that this comes after Dan is, is looking at end of days or antichrist coming out of the tribe of Dan, that it will be a Danite that is the Antichrist um, based on the Jeremiah passages and that he'll actually be attacking and going after those Jews. Um, it could be then that Jacob is just seeing all of this play out. And as he does this, Jacob also sees Jesus. And that's where the explanation comes from, is you're thinking of this serpent that's going to bite the heels, that's going to cause the rider to fall backwards. And then Jacob kind of says, I've waited for your salvation, O Lord. I've, I'm waiting for Jesus. And that's what the Jews will be doing when that happens. But again, that's traditions and prophecies tough when it hasn't come true because you're kind of guessing. And I always have trouble trying to guess at prophecy because so many Jewish people missed it when Jesus came. And these are people that were a lot more scholarly than I was trying to study these scriptures. And they totally missed Jesus in the process. Um, but Jesus is right there and he's throughout these kinds of things. So verse 19, Gad, Gad remember means troop. So again, another play of words, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon them. He shall triumph or overcome at last. So <laughs> this is kind of an interesting passage because it's, it's almost, it's, it's really rhythmic. Uh, all those intercessory words out there. So really it's in the Hebrew, it's Gad, Gadud, Gud, Gud. So troop, troop, overcome, overcome with a footprint is kind of what that uh, literal translation would be. Uh, Gad ends up on the east side of Jordan. 
uh, Gad will be for centuries battered by every tribe that wants to come at Israel. The first tribe in their way will be the tribe of Gad. And you could say that's kind of a bad prophecy for them. But at the end of the, the end of days, they become a strong and valorless people. They don't fall into the pit hold of just getting beat up all the time. They actually fight back and become the, the armor or the, the shield for the nation of Israel. And they serve Israel as kind of a military Spartan-like awesome fighter group of people. Small tribe, but tough. First Chronicles 12.8 calls them skilled. First Chronicles 5.18, uh, I'm sorry, First Chronicles 12.8 calls them men of valor and men of war. And in First Chronicles 5.18, it calls them skilled. Um, so they get trampled on, but that actually strengthens them and makes them stronger. Like any trial that we have, that's the potential upside of it. Uh, the Misha ascription from the ninth century uh, Gad is listed in dwelling in Adareth um, from old. So uh, we find that there are other nations that are referencing these tribes from this point forward too. Uh, verse 20, the bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. <laughs> so it later turns out that the Asherites become mainly agricultural and they're exceptionally good at growing grains and they become known for their breads and cereal and food production. A lot like Minnesota. So the, the, the bread of the happy people will make people happy. Naphtali, verse 21, is a deer set loose, another animal comparison. He uses beautiful words. Uh, what's interesting here is Naphtali will get the land up in the mountains. Um, they become good fighters along with Gad. In Judges 5, uh, there is a, a song that's captured the song of Deborah and Barak. And that song would have been likely written by Naphtalites, which becomes one of the major songs of the Bible. Verse 22, we get to Joseph. Joseph's a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. But his bow remains strong. His bow remains strong in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong. And by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, and by the God of your father who will help you and by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven alone, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who separates from his, who was separate from his brothers. So verse 22, Joseph's going to get the most attention of all the sons. He was Jacob's favorite, and he is Jacob's favorite. The descendants in Numbers 26, this tribe, Ephraim and Manasseh put together, become the most populated tribes of Israel. Um, they will become northern, is northern Israel at one point, uh, second only really to Judah's territory. And when the two nations split up, they split up that way. Ephraim and Manasseh become northern Israel. Judah becomes Judah, southern Israel. Um experience of being a target made strong. Joseph's whole life, we've just got done with that last time we talked, his whole life has been one where he's been attacked and he's managed to come out of that and be strong and his blessings are overflowing, going over the wall into all the rest of the families. So God strengthens Joseph, he uses him. Joseph teaches us how to submit to God even in these trials and tough times um, to learn to enjoy the kind of that rush of 
living with faith in your life and watching what God will do. Um, even when Joseph's bitterly grieved, he's still waiting to see what God will do in his life. <laughs> Joseph holds the bow, God shoots the arrows. And if you notice the phrase on that, uh, it talks about his arm being strong, but it doesn't talk about his aim or anything like that. And I like the image that in life we hold the bow, but God shoots the arrows. And if they're going to hit a target, that's just kind of a not really our job to figure out. Um, there's a lot of different names of God listed in this blessing. Um, and we see through Joseph's faithfulness many perspectives on God. So there's the mighty Ibir, there's Yaakov, one word for God, one word for Jacob, Ra'ah, Iben, El-Ab, and Shaddai, Almighty. And if you put El Shaddai, you have God Almighty. So all those phrases are used in that blessing for Joseph. The utmost bound of the everlasting hills implies that this blessing is eternal and it goes beyond time. So again, there's a Messiah that's going to come through Judah and the line of kings, but there's this family blessing that's gone Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But it seems like Jacob's handing that blessing right now to Joseph, which splits the inheritance of kingship or the scepter of rulership from this blessing and anointing that's going to happen between the two tribes. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. There's our last animal comparison. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoils. It's hard to think of this as like a positive. Like, Where's the blessing in that? It seems like Benjamin's tribe is going to struggle. Uh, it will. It's going to be the smallest of the tribes with the strongest of warriors. They will be an asset to the tribe, just like a wolf is an asset to their pack, right? So there's a violence to Benjamin's tribe that will come up, but whenever you get the Benjaminites to fight with you, you're in pretty good shape throughout the rest of the Bible. So if they're on your side, if you get Gad on your side, those two tribes are kind of the heavy hitters and will be of the northern and southern kingdoms too. Um, it apprised when it says hungry and ravenous, it implies a strain that the life of this tribe will not be an easy one, um, that there will be a, um, a toughness to them that comes out of hardship, uh, and the idea that they'll divide the spoil. When they do win in war, the Benjaminites will share their wealth with the rest of Israel, which becomes kind of cool. Verse 28, all of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. So, we're going to switch gears and we move from the blessings poetry to <laughs> good dog. Good dog. I'm trying to ignore him, hon. He's doing everything he can do to get my attention. Shadow, not right now. Do you need to go to your kennel? Shadow, lay down or kennel? Good boy. If he ever called her bluff on that and realized we don't actually have that set up anymore. No. Oh, there he goes. Okay. So we're in verse 29. This is going to shift gears. We leave the first poem, and we're going to move to another poem. And if you remember, chiastic structure has the same thing said on the beginning and the end, the same thing said the next tier in, and then you focus in on the main point of the section. So this works the exact same, and I'm just going to read through it. Then he charged them and he said, and this is talking about Joseph's death, right? Joseph's going to die now. Jacob. Then he charged, I'm sorry, Jacob. Oh, I'm, 
it's going to parallel Joseph's death. So Jacob's death and Joseph's death have almost exactly the same format and structure. Makes it easier to memorize. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan. In case you didn't know where it is, I'm going to describe it in multiple different ways, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah's wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah's wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob actually dies this time. I think it's cool that they're, they've just left Canaan. They're settled and have been for 17 years in Egypt. But Jacob firmly believes by faith that that land will still be available to him to bring his body to. This is the only reference to Leah that we have uh, upon her after her death. Um, and it appears that she's been given the highest place of honor in where she's buried. She's the first wife. She's the wife that gets recognized as the first wife based on her burial place. Rachel gets an honorable burial too, but not in the cave in Mamre or the, the cave of patriarchs. It's cool as this place is still there. Um, so it, th- at this point, we're completely rooted in history, and some of these sites that are cared for through the ages are still there. You can visit them. It's a tourist site. Um, the idea that Jacob says all this stuff and then he immediately dies is either a poetic form or Jacob actually had some control over when he was going to die which is an odd thought. And we see this often in, in our families when people die. Often we get people where it like feels like they got to pick when to die. Or like one of their kids couldn't make it from another state and they fly in and see him in the hospital and they see that kid and within an hour they're, they're dead. And there's stories like this that'll come up in your families if they haven't already. But it's almost like sometimes people get to choose when to give up their ghost. And that's an amazing blessing that God would give to somebody to be able to kind of close up loose ends before they die. Um, Notice that he's buried with his fathers, but his soul is gathered to his people. And there's a difference between where your body goes and where your soul goes. Um, We're going to come back to this when we get um, the form. But let me describe the chiastic form here. Verse 29 and verse 33 He charges them and then he gathers to his people. And in 33, he commands them and gathers to his people. Um, The next thing in is the location. So first we have the command to bury him. And then in the second thing is the location. So in verse 30, we have in the cave um, that Abraham bought. And in verse 32, it's in the cave that was bought or purchased. All of that focuses in making verse 31 the middle verse. They buried him with Abraham and Isaac in Canaan. The key point of this is that the patriarchs are buried in Canaan and that the land actually matters because the land is the promise. It's the one thing that's left undone when we leave Israel in Egypt. So verse 31, we've buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. We've buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and then buried Leah, and we don't have Jacob. So verse 31 format-wise isn't a finished sentence. It's an incomplete sentence. So in the Hebrew, it's just buried Abraham, Sarah, wife, buried Isaac, Rebecca, wife, buried Leah. It almost is like this message of 
Joseph, finish this sentence, like finish the job and don't let me like take my body and put it in the right place. So we have the structure of these two deaths. Here's Jacob's death, and it's going to connect with the same structure at the end of Genesis with Joseph's death. Verse 1 of chapter 50, Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. I think it's really cool that he could be second in command of Egypt, but there is no pretense for Joseph at all. He is willing to cry. He does it in front of people. He loves and honors his father, even as an old man. Remember that, Grant? Um, and that he's Joseph's not trying to be anything other than who he is as a human being. And I wish sometimes as humans we'd have a lot more of that in the world. That no matter that people get into a certain position and they feel like they have to act a certain way versus position being secondary to who you are in Christ. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. Oh, oh, oh this is geek land. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. The days are key, because if you look into Egyptian embalming, this all matches everything we found out about him. And mummification or Egyptian embalming is actually really easy to study, because these bodies are still here. And Katie has a prof who's actually touched an Egyptian mummy. I see, I got that in. Uh, mourning is for the whole nation, which shows the prestige and honor that the Pharaoh had given to Joseph. Um, 70 days of mourning is actually two days shy of what the Pharaoh himself gets when he dies. So according to Egyptian records, when a Pharaoh dies, the whole nation goes into mourning for 72 days. So for Joseph, he is just one notch shy of being at that position. So the 70 days is relevant to Egyptian readers. It means nothing to Jewish readers. The nation is personally being run by Joseph. This makes sense that he would have that kind of honor and respect. Ultimately, the Egyptians owed Joseph their life. So by honoring Joseph's father, they're honoring Joseph. Jacob's burial gets the most detail in the entire book of Genesis. In fact, I couldn't find it. I'm not sure if I can confidently say this. I think it's the most detail of any funeral in the entire Bible because I just couldn't find anything that even compares. Even Jesus's burial doesn't get as much attention as Jacob's burial does, which is what we're about to see here. Um, it's twice noted that embalming was done by a physician. That's a key point. In Egyptian traditions, physicians don't do embalming. So this is a really relevant point. Joseph's commanding that his servants, the physicians, to embalm the father. Embalming was always done by the priests in the Egyptian world. So by having doctors do it instead of priests, Joseph's essentially having an Egyptian-style mummification process without any of the mystical enchantments and runes and the religion of the Egyptians. So it's kind of key that he's doing it with physicians here and not the mystical elements of the Egyptian faith. So according to the Smithsonian... Egyptian embalming starts with, you take the dead body, you remove all moisture. So you drain it of blood, and then it gets dried out. They probably accidentally discovered this with dead bodies in the desert, that they get dried out and that they survive a long time. Um, most mummies can last upwards of 3,000 years without any of our scientific methodology to help it out. So when we're finding mummies, we're finding them to the degree to which you can still see the features of the face with the skin on it. So you can recognize 
facial features in mummies when you first open them up, which is totally freaky. Um, this is the this period of time, according to the Smithsonian, was the Egyptians' golden age of mummification. This is the era when they would put the big gold masks on. The pyramids were already happening. Uh, unlike VeggieTales jokes, um, the Jewish people probably didn't build the pyramids. They probably built the granary bins. Um, the quality would vary between rich people and super higher up rich priests and government leaders. Poor mummification was a 40-day mummification. So Joseph took the quick, fast, physician-enabled. They didn't do all the enchantments. So 40 days is significant because that is the the quick and sloppy, low-key like version of mummification. The full 70 days would have been something that included all the enchantments and the bells and whistles, and that's the Rolls-Royce of mummification. So the quality would vary. It's interesting here then, and in the Bible, they match those dates the same as the, the Egyptologists with this... Egyptologists with the Smithsonian match the exact same day counts. 40 days required to do the mummification, verse 3, but for those days that are, for those who are involved, and the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days, which is significant. They gave him the seven-day mourning period, but he only needed 40 days for mummification. So to get the brains out, they would take a long hook-shaped object which often shows up in Egyptian ruins and whatnot, and they would scrape the inside of the skull so it was all dried out, and they'd pull it out bit by bit through the nasal cavity, which then they didn't have to cut any of the face or do any damage to the facial parts. Then, to get the guts out, they'd make a small incision on the left side of the body, and they'd pull all every organ out through that incision, and drain it out completely except for one organ, the heart, because the heart was believed to be the place where the life was. And if you left the heart, then you could resurrect the body later on. Also, the heart's fully muscle. So once you drain the blood, muscle's super tough and it's easy to preserve. So once they took the organ out, they'd put the organs in what they called canopic jars. They would dry them out. They would put them in a little jar, just like a Frankenstein scientist. Um, and then they would put the jars in the tomb with the body um, so that when someone was resurrected, they could go grab their organs and stick them back in. So in the afterlife, right? The mask would go on the face to cover it up and protect it. So you get those big ornate Egyptian gold masks that they'd put over them. And then they'd dry the whole body with salts that, or a natron salt, which is particularly good at drying things out. They'd put packets of natron salts up into the body, which would, again, suck the moisture out completely. And then they would stuff everything, just like we do now for burial when we do open casket. They'd restuff the body with linen and, and, and various fabrics to puff it back out and make it look fancy. Um, they'd put false eyes into the eye sockets. Um, and then they'd wrap the whole body with linen strips and, and resin covering layers of those linen strips. Again, all of that was designed to get all the moisture out of the physical body. Um, for the Egyptians, they would interweave all those strips of cloth, would have charms, runes, and spells on them. Uh, and then they would wrap the body with all these spells and whatnot. And then they'd cover the whole thing with a shroud. All of this to say that Joseph made a mummy out of his daddy. That's the worst joke of all time. <laughs> <laughs>
Remember in the city of Ramses, uh, they had an archaeological dig that had 12 crypts and one missing body, um, which matches exactly what the Bible's going to say. Uh, the one missing body was the largest of the tombs. It had a statue next to it with the mushroom haircut. You remember all this? Um, and they, most people believe that that city and that burial is the tombs of the brothers and the patriarchs. The missing body is the one the Bible says they took the bones and they hauled them out of there when they left 400 years later. Um, another thing that supports that tomb, which I saved for this, is in that tomb there are no incantations, no Egyptian um, uh, spells or any indication that there were seals or spells of any sort. So it, there's nothing in that tomb that represents the Egyptian religion, but where when you go into the pyramids and the tombs of the kings, they stopped using pyramids because tomb robbers would come and steal stuff. So it was a very short period where Egyptians built pyramids. They quickly went to underground or buried tombs, and they were already making that shift in the time of Joseph. So it's interesting that this tomb wasn't fully buried. It was enough close to the top to where we could find it with archaeology. They believe most of the tombs from Joseph's era are actually lower down, and we're going to find them with further digs in the future. But this tomb was kind of almost like a mausoleum in New Orleans, they think it was almost an above-ground thing, which would make sense if you had no intention of leaving one of the bodies there. You'd make that a tomb that you could enter and access and get into. Um, so note that when Joseph dies, they don't bury the body. They put it in a tomb, which would, the wording even would match that kind of uh, tomb that they found there. All right. Verse 4. Now, when the days of mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I now have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I'll come back. Um, this appeal to Pharaoh's household is going to mirror in poetic form the brother's appeal to Joseph after um, the father dies. So Joseph's going to make an appeal to Pharaoh. The brothers will make an appeal to Joseph. Um, it's cool that Joseph's number two, second only to Pharaoh, but he still goes to the household of Pharaoh, which is this indication of, again, humility, respect for Pharaoh. He doesn't come into that space if he doesn't have to. Um, he says, if you've, I've found favor in your eyes, which is a completely allowing the Pharaoh to say no uh, and giving him room to say that, Joseph just again and again shows how he respects authority. He's okay with it. Um, even when it's an ungodly authority, Joseph's just humble about it. He asks for a little time off. This is the first occasion of an employee asking for time off in the Bible. So this is his first reference to that. Um, he says he'll come back. He knows exactly what Pharaoh's fear is. If Joseph's been saving Egypt to go on a journey that might take a month or more, Pharaoh's concern is, am I going to lose Joseph? Now he's got his family. He's going to go back to Canaan. So this promise that he would come back is to kind of, I think, assure Pharaoh. And in verse 6, Pharaoh says, Go up and bury your father as he's made you swear. Um, so Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, just to make sure he's going to come back. Pharaoh sends a good contingent. The elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt at this point, we've got a massive funeral procession marching through other countries. Um, so this is the beginning of this funeral march that's going to start. Um, and I just like that Pharaoh's like, we're just going to send a bunch of people with you. 
he's I think it's written as though Pharaoh is honoring the burial of Joseph's dad. Um, but there's very practical reasons, I'm sure, for sending more of the Egyptian contingent than the Jewish contingent. As well as the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. They didn't make the kids make this trip. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and a very solemn lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. Um, mourning and lamentation are two very different words. Um, Mikped, lamentation in verse 10, uh, and mourning is evil. Those are different meanings. And to mourn someone and to lament something are very two different things. It's the first use in the Bible, and from here out when we see lamentation, it's equally likely to be translated as mourning. But in this verse, it's a very different thing from the word they use for mourning. A lamentation implies that we cry out to God. We let God have it. We're angry at God. We're frustrated with God. We're grieving with God. We take our pain and we shout it towards God. And that's the mikpah implies that. The mourning is something when we just we mourn what we've lost. So a lamentation is more of a, a prayer and mourning is more of a feeling that we have when something's horrid. I think when we see this funeral and the detail they're giving to this, it's important to know if we have somebody that's lost a loved one, mourning can take years and years and years and years because you're regretting something you've lost. A lamentation can also take a ton of time and they don't necessarily resolve at the same time. And that's why a lot of people that do kind of counseling for grieving people will tell you not to say, oh, it's no big deal. It's all part of God's plan. Because you might be yelling at God at the time. You might kind of be upset with God. And that that's an okay, healthy process. And biblically, um, the, our heroes in the faith do lamentations all the time. And God's a big enough God that he can handle those lamentations. When we really need to yell at God, we should let him have it. But just not in public places unless you're with a funeral procession. And then you all do it together. Verse 11, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, I just, this is, I can see it like the movie sequence, all these people tromping through the land, chariots are war tools, there's chariots, so I'm sure the Canaanites are coming out to check on this, and you just see two little people looking up over a hill, and they turn to each other, you know, and they're like, uh-huh. um, but they recognize after checking in on this, what could be an invasion force, or an army, they recognize this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. This isn't an invasion force. They're not here to attack. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, uh, which is beyond the Jordan. It's a place of mourning, a deep mourning. Um, how would you recognize it's not an invasion force? Some of the mourning traditions, and this comes from rabbinic and Jewish traditions, you, the wailing or the lamentations would actually be yelling and screaming. And there's still some cultures that still do that, right? So the lamentations would be a large contingent of people screaming at the top of their lungs, um, not war cries, but yelling and crying. They would tear their clothes, which soldiers don't do, and then they would cover themselves in mud. Um, so that it was probably when you looked at it visually, you would easily see this as a, a giant funeral service. So verse 12, his sons did for him just as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought 
with the field of Ephraim the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, and he and his brothers all went up with him to bury his father. You see in verse 12 and 14, you have almost identical sentences. And the center of that, again, um, another chiastic thing is where the burial happened is the key part of that passage. That's what you're supposed to pull out of that. Um, this entire thing, and just a thought on this, marching a bunch of people up to Canaan to bury somebody makes no sense at all. There's nothing rational about this. This is entirely an act of faith. Because if somebody dies, you dig a hole and you put them in it and you say your farewells and have a service and you're done. There's no need to actually go up to Canaan unless Joseph's faith believes that that's where God wants Jacob to be buried. So in doing this, Jacob Joseph is sharing his faith with all the Egyptians and everybody there. Um, God has made promises around the end, land of Canaan, and there is no indication at this point to Joseph that they own anything other than this burial site, which was purchased, which is why it's so important in verse 13 that they point out that Abraham bought this. The other thing is you could have a kooky dad that thinks he's hearing from God, but when you have a kooky grandfather a kooky father, and then God starts to talk to you. Uh, the Bible often says the truth of a matter is found by two or three witnesses agreeing to it. With three patriarchs, we have three witnesses that God has a plan and a promise for the nation of Israel. So God appears to be following his own rules, which would give you reason to bury Jacob where he's supposed to be buried. So hundreds of prophecies are going to get fulfilled. Um, some of them are done with lots of people watching. In this case, the promise of this land coming back to the Israelites is being made in front of all the Egyptians. They should know this 400 years later. And when Joseph says it's time for us to leave, Pharaoh should have let them leave. And we'll get to that in Exodus. Um, it's, an, it's interesting how Israel continues to stick around, even though they started with no land and throughout their history. There's been three occasions where people have tried to eliminate Israelites. Because Israel is a major problem. If God's made his promises through Israel, all you got to do if you're Satan is get rid of Israel. So they've been targeted for extinction by the Egyptians, by the Persians, and later by the Germans, where there have been people that have tried to just purposefully wipe out all Jewish people. Um, but they're still here. They just keep sticking around. Uh, so you've got this people that beyond all worldly sense or, or rationale are there, um, and they continue to hold to Jehovah, and even the ones that are not Messianic Jews still hold to Jehovah as, as their promise and their truth. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us. He might actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. That makes a lot of sense, right? He's keeping his brothers alive because he respects his dad. He knew his dad didn't like murder, but now that dad's dead, it's payback time. And so... If from the world's eyes, this makes sense. When somebody's wronged, instantly we think of either defending ourselves when we're wronged or attacking the person who wronged us. It is rarely the case that humans naturally say, when I'm wronged, I want to love that person. Um, and Joseph's going to be a model of that here, which I think is cool. Um, notice also that they freely acknowledge at this point that they did evil. That's a good thing. When people don't have a conscience, they don't think they've done evil. Um, and then they don't repent. So the fact that they say he may repay us for all the evil we did shows that his brothers actually have a healthy conscience. 
and that means their heart is soft, and that's a good thing. So, <laughs> smart, they've learned from their dad. Remember when he came back from Esau, they sent messengers to Esau to soften him up a little bit? They do the same thing. Also note that this totally parallels that Joseph sent messengers to the Pharaoh. Um, the brothers send messengers, verse 16, to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, this is something that was commanded by the father, same as the Jacob narrative. Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers for their sin, for they did evil to you. It's not a direct apology, but it's as close as we're going to get from the brothers. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of God, your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke it to him. So why are they weeping? Why is he weeping? He's either weeping because he sees that his brothers actually have a conscience and they're apologizing. That would cause a lot of pretty tough guys to break down in tears. Because when people repent, it's, it tugs at our heartstrings and it's beautiful to see. When you see somebody say, forgive me, tears flow pretty naturally. And here they're actually asking for forgiveness in their own way. So Joseph weeps, weeps. It could also be that he wept because this had to be really hard after everything that's happened. And they've been hanging out together for 17 years now. And they still don't know Joseph, right? Even when he was a little guy coming to check on him with the shepherd thing and they throw him in the pit and they fake like he's dead, they didn't really know him. He never has connected to his brothers, which would be really hard if you love your brothers and they just never understood you or got you. You're just a foreigner in a, in, in, even in your own home. Um, and they still doubt his motives and they still don't read him and they still just don't get that he just loves them. Um, so in verse 18, then his brothers also went and fell down before his face and they said, behold, we're your servants, which is interesting because that would be the penalty for the kind of things they've done. They made Joseph a servant. The natural penalty is that we can be your servants. They're actually saying, they're actually accepting what would be a legitimate penalty for their sins. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, for I, am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as in this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Um, what a beautiful passage. Am I in the place of God? He asked them in verse 19. It's pretty harsh, but payback's not our job ever. And this is a really tough thing for Christians to figure out. It's not our job to... We discern so we know who we should be spending our time with and who we shouldn't. But it's not our job to judge. That's kind of God's job. Matthew 7, 1 says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Luke 6, 37 expands on it. Judge not, lest, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Joseph's the first to do that in the Bible totally just takes that sin and throws it away and tosses it. God even says, I take your sin and throw it as far as the east is from the west. And Joseph models that and does it. Verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many lives. God's main work, even in the ugly life of Joseph, is to save and redeem the world. So it really doesn't matter what happens to Joseph. If something happens to me that's bad and other people are blessed by it, what an awesome thing. Like what better use could be made of one's life? And Joseph just gets that. And he gets that God's still in control. And I like that. Romans 8.28 says, 
And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph just gets that. It's all God's stuff. It's all God's plan. And he honestly doesn't think he takes the place of God. The Christian irony here is when he says, am I in the place of God? And as a Christian, you're kind of like, uh, yeah, the entire story of Joseph's been mirroring Jesus Christ. So you kind of are in the place of God, but Joseph doesn't know that and humbly steps away from that position at this point. So verse 22, Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, kind of like Grandpa Joseph could share those promises directly for multiple generations. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. So uh, the website Hubcap talks about an Egyptian text that outlands a, a priestly claim to a land given by Pharaoh Choser in the, six, the 16th Pharaoh. Um, it records Pharaoh's chancellor, quote unquote, his chancellor oversaw everything and they named this chancellor Imohotep, um, which Jewish people believe is the Egyptian version of Joseph. Quote um, from this same text, the Egyptian text, Joseph or Imohotep had the reputation of a Greek god of medicine who invented the art of building and hewn stone. So the Egyptians actually credit this guy, Pharaoh's number two, with actually teaching them how to build things. That's a strong claim. Chaucer's tomb inscription, so the pharaoh that was in this position, names Imhotep as first after the king, plus a bunch more titles. So they give this kind of number two guy a bunch of titles in the inscriptions inside Chaucer's tomb. Um, and Chaucer's tomb, if you go with this line of archaeology, was one of the first step pyramids that were built. I don't buy this because a lot of the other dating systems have other pyramids being built at this point. But what they do have next to Chaucer's tomb is a massive grain distribution center. And the person building that step tomb would have been the same person that built this city complex around this tomb area. The distribution center, it's kind of brilliant, has 11 massive pits. And when I say pit, that's a light word. These are huge four to five story pits that are as big as an Olympic swimming pool around. They were like grain silos below the ground instead of above the ground. And all 11 of them have a little chute that connects down into a single holding pin. So if you go down the hill, there was a distribution center at the bottom of that where all 11 grain buildings could come through one thing. Even better, you can still go here. It's a tourist attraction. And the accessible point for the lower bin was a single hallway about four feet wide. In other words, to get into this green distribution center, you had to stand in a line where one person could see and meet out the green that would be going out of that space. Um, so uh, Joseph in the land of Chaucer and this idea that he could still be there and still rule, he would have probably served future pharaohs in addition to the one he served because he's there for a long time. Joseph's children gets to share the faith, the stories, all of this, and Joseph probably putting all of Genesis together in these toldoths. 
he would have maintained those things and he would have through the Egyptians found ways to write and maintain writing that would make it so that those things could travel in little scrolls later on. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Notice that it doesn't say he was buried. Again, look at the chiastic form in verse 24. I am dying in verse 26. Joseph died. Uh, verse 24, God will surely visit you. In verse 25, God will surely visit you. Um, and what comes in the middle? The location of the burial. The fact that there's a promise for the land that was sworn in case you didn't get what land it was. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that land, um, that's the one where Joseph wants to be. And he wants to be buried there. So um, Dave Gusick summarizes the life of Joseph like this. If Joseph's brothers never sold him to the Midianites, Joseph would have never gone to Egypt. So it's like, I get sold to the, to the Midianites. Oh, that's really bad. But he got to go to Egypt. That's pretty good. If Joseph never went to Egypt, he would never have been sold to Potiphar. If he was never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife would have never falsely accused him of rape. If Potiphar's wife never falsely accused him of rape, he would have never gotten put in prison. And if he never got put in prison, he would have never met the baker and the butler of Pharaoh. If he never met the baker and the butler of Pharaoh, he would have never interpreted dreams. If he never interpreted their dreams, he would have never got to interpret Pharaoh's dream. If he never got to interpret Pharaoh's dream, he would have never became the prime minister or chancellor. And if he never became the chancellor, he would have never wisely administered for the severe famine and coming up in the region. If he never administered for the famine coming on the region, then his family would have died in Israel. And if his family would have, and if family back in Canaan perished from the famine, there would be no line of Messiah to come forth from this family. So if Messiah could not have come forth, then Jesus would have never came. And if Jesus never came, then we're all dead in our sins without hope in the world because the enemy rules. All of this because of the lives of Joseph. This is it. This is the beginning of everything. And as we finish this book, I won't go back and read it again, but this is all Stephen needed when he stood before the Sanhedrin. This is all he quoted was Genesis and Moses and Exodus. This is it. Everything you need to share the gospel with somebody is right here in the book of Genesis. And this is what this idea that God has made promises to us, that there's a Messiah that's coming, that Messiah will be everlasting. It's going to come through the line of Judah and it'll be somebody who doesn't die. And really there's only one person that's made that claim in the history of the world at this point. And that's what Stephen pointed out. He goes before the Sanhedrin and they're like, you're questioning our authority as your rabbinical leaders. And he's like, I'm questioning your authority because your authority doesn't come from anybody but God and God does things without our permission. And he does it all the time. He has a promise and a plan for our lives. And it's not something that other people boss us around on. God doesn't live in a temple and he never did. And that's where Stephen goes back. And this is what really ticked off the rabbinical people. As Stephen pointed out that Abraham didn't have a temple. And Isaac never had a temple. And Jacob didn't have a temple. And Joseph saved these people based on the promises of God, not based on a temple or a Levitical priesthood. Right? This is what shocked Paul or Saul of Tarsus as he was sitting there holding the coats while they stoned Stephen. As he goes, wait a second. Yeah, 
And he actually uses this when he writes his letter to the churches. It's the same argument that Stephen made is that God follows through faith. It's individual faith in God that saves. It is not the law and it's not the temple that was constructed. Um, so we have the book of Genesis. We don't have the law. We don't have the temples. We just have people that talk directly to God and God talk back to them. And that faith is ascribed unto Abraham as righteousness. And that's what Stephen was arguing too. Like, look, it's not you as priests don't rule our faith. God rules our faith. And he doesn't wait on humans. And of course, they stoned him for that. My fear is that I don't want to miss out on God's plan for my life because I'm so blind that I can't see it. That the sin or the arrogance that we as humans can tell God what's going on in our life. What a sad moment. And, and Genesis lays that out so perfectly. We can't tell God who's going to get the blessing. God tells us who gets the blessing. And God rarely put, picks the people that are firstborn. He picks the people that are spiritually born again and that they're ready to serve God. People like Joseph, people like Judah, that people that repent, people that have soft hearts, and we wait on God. We can hold the bow like Joseph in his blessing, um, but God shoots the arrows. Um, and we watch God do miracles through our life. And we can wait like Sarah and say, is there anything too marvelous for God? Is there anything God can't do? And the answer is no. God can do anything in our lives. All we have to do is wait and watch and see what those miracles are going to be. And Joseph's life, Joseph's life mirrors Jesus in the same kind of way. He basically takes whatever gets thrown at him, a lot of nasty stuff, and he waits for God to do his work through that. So with this book, the book of Genesis, you have everything you need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need go no further. But God graciously gives us lots more to go with, with the prophets and the, the Psalms, because um, he wants to feed our souls. Um, that said, I also thought this was Genesis. You have everything you need in the book of Genesis to totally rebel against this world of sin and death. That Genesis has set up that there is Israel, there are the people of God, and there are 70 nations of the world that have promulgated. We have many more now. Um, but if you want to rebel against the world's structure, the world's idea of, of lust, greed, pride, power, all of that's in the book of Genesis. And this pathway that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob set up to resist that world, especially Abraham, you know, and to, to love them, but not be like them, to live in the world, but not of the world. If you really want to be a rebel, tell people you don't bow to their authority, you bow to God's. That ticks people off, especially your bosses right? We also have this model of how to serve from Joseph towards the end of Genesis, where if we serve with a humble and a gentle heart, and we submit to the authorities of this world and graciously serve, that we can actually bring honor to God through that. Abraham does the same thing, right? When foreign nations look at Abraham's family and they honor him and his wife, um, when we live godly lives, the rest of the world sees that, and we can bring glory to God, or we can bring disgust to God. And I, that's super convicting to me that everybody sees how we live. And if we call ourselves Christians, they either see our hypocrisy and we're a shame in front of God, or they see that it's the real deal and we honor and glorify God through our lives. When we're joyful and happy and we bless people, even though they hate us, that confounds this world and is a complete act of rebellion against the structures of this world. But there's more to come. So when we end Genesis, there are some unwrapped up loose ends. One loose end is Joseph's body and his bones got to get carried back to the Holy Land.
So in Exodus, we'll see that they carry Joseph's body out of that tomb and they bring it back to the Holy Land. Another thing is we still have a prophecy for each tribe that needs to get fulfilled. So in 49, we got a bunch more prophecies that we're looking for. And then, of course, last but not least, the prophecy that comes all the way back from Genesis 3. There will be a Messiah that comes from the line of man that will save this world from sin and death. And that Adam and Eve, they screwed everything up. This world is gone that way because they want to. And generation after generation, everybody's choosing sin and their own will over God's will. But there will be a Messiah that will overcome that and give us the ability to overcome it too. So we'll keep looking for Messiah all the way through to the New Testament. But those other two, the homeland, the other tribe, that's the stories that are to come in the book of Exodus. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you uh, for your blessing, for your grace. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to wonder what you have to say to us. We can just read it. Um, And we don't have to guess. We don't have to have libraries full of books at the Christian bookstore to figure this out. We can just read it. Um, Lord, we thank you that there is nothing too complex here that we can't just pick it up and share it with somebody we know. Um, Lord, it is a absolute falsehood that people in power want to give to the believers in faith that we need to listen to those in authority, Lord, when we're not under their authority, we're under yours. And Lord, we're happy to serve. We're happy to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We're happy to ask permission from the Pharaoh for time off. Um, But Lord, we know that you're our God and you're our king. And only to the degree to which the Pharaoh understands that about Joseph will he be blessed by Joseph. So Lord, we serve you. We serve you more than any boss on this earth. We serve you over all things. But Lord, give us ears to hear your will. There's so many people in Genesis that don't hear you because they care more about themselves than about God. And Lord, we don't, there is no position, there is no worldview, there is no political stance, there is no theological stance that should get in the way of us serving you with our whole heart. Lord, we'll listen to you before we listen to any of those positions that humans have come up with. Lord, not because we don't care, but because we do care. Uh, Lord, and we don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss what you're calling for our life. We don't want to miss the blessing. And Lord, we'll wrestle all night to get that blessing. We just want you. Um, So, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit. May you come in our lives and our heart. May you soften our hearts towards others. Help us to not judge people, but to love them. Lord, transform us because everything in our flesh wants to judge. Lord, we are just sinners. We are not great. We are not wonderful. And we are not holy. You are holy. And, Lord, we bow before you. So when people see us and they see glory, help us to turn them to you not to look at us and and be proud of what we've become because of you, Lord, but but to remember that you have brought us out of the land of Egypt. You have brought brought us out of our own sin. You've brought us out of our own self-will. You've opened our eyes. You've cleaned out our ears. Lord, you've given us paths to walk and steps to take. And at every step, Lord, we've relied on you to open those doors. So Lord, let us never be so prideful that we forget that or we forget from whence we came. Lord, we come from you. And help us to point people to you in every chance and every opportunity we get. Help us to love others, not just with our emotions, Lord, but with our resources, with our talents, with our skills, and by sharing your holy word with them. Help us to speak truth into people's lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 He hears in Jesus' name now. Now he hears in Jesus' name. Okay, here it is. There's the moment. That's it.
this is the complete notes of Genesis. We're done. That's a book right there. Yes. Do you want to hold it? No. (laughs) It's very fun. Anybody else want to hold it? (laughs) Is it bad that I'm super, super proud? Oh, it's super cool. It is kind of cool. I'm proud. That's a lot of work. That's a thicker manuscript than anything I've done for my books. Don't drop it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's not, it's the page numbers start with each teaching. So there would be like 30 so page twos in there. Yeah. Are you glad you came for the last one, Catherine? Good. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it post it on your social media.